I heard you saying something like, I've never really liked the Supremes or something in the kitchen, and I was just like... <laughs> <laughs> you just leave. <laughs> You're yeah, like, just, oh, I'm no. out. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. My name is Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, rare toothpick collector, Peter Cook. Hi, hi. Uh, Fantasy Travel Agency tour guide, Jeremy Ruggles. Ahoy, hoy. And we have our special guest for the next two episodes, Weekend Little League Foursquare coach, Katie May. Well, howdy. Uh, so we're trying this new thing where we have guest artists. We had Earl Jordan for the last two weeks and Katie May is our second official guest on this series. And what we've been doing is the guest picks out one record that we're going to profile and then picks from a few of our selections for another one. So the record we're doing today was selected by Peter Cook and co-selected by Katie as well. So Peter, what are we talking about? Today we are going to be talking about Spirits. 1968 release the family that plays together and it's actually their second album from 1968 well yeah spirit just came out and this is their second album overall they came out the gate swinging katie were you familiar with this album at all prior to signing on for this podcast it's one of those albums that you see a million times in a record store and you know based on the cover that it's some rock album but because of the era you're not really willing to like give it a chance because you see it everywhere it just sits forever you don't know anything about it but i did a little bit of research before tonight and it is a really interesting album yeah well and you kind of set that up perfectly because not only does this album sit in record stores forever at three dollars that's what i paid for it mm-hmm. But it's then I bought it for $3 and then took it home and it sat in my collection forever before I ever listened to it. Yeah, I've done that. Uh, going way back about 20 years, I might have been uh, dinking around on the internet when it was in its very early stages and was maybe on... I we'll just get this out of the way. A-O-L. We can, <laughs> yeah, we're going to get this out of the way and then let Spirit have their own identity. I might've been on a site about material that Led Zeppelin had stolen. And I read about this band spirit who had a song, a piece of music called Taurus. Yeah. And in more recent years, that has become a much more known, uh, composition due to its similarities to stairway to heaven, which this came before stairway to heaven. Right. Yeah. I was going to say most people only know this band because of that comparison working in the record store. When that was the it music news, everybody was like, yeah, this band spirit. I hear that supposedly Led Zeppelin ripped them off, but that doesn't make sense. Cause I've never heard of spirit and Led Zeppelin's the greatest. It's yeah. Like, yeah. And it's funny. Cause if you go on Spotify, Taurus is their number one song with yeah. over 2 million listens. And then, I Got a Lie on You, which was their big hit, has like half that amount of listens Mm -hmm. on there. (laughs) And that song is on this album, and I will talk about that shortly. But So that's the first time I ever heard of Spirit. And go forward like almost a decade, 2008 or so, I'm probably poking around on a blog and find their self-titled, which has Taurus on it. 
and listen to it and I'm just blown away by this record. Like, just fantastic songwriting, guitar playing, weird mixture of rock, psychedelia, jazz. Yeah. <laughs> They're all over the place and doing it pretty seamlessly. I listened to that one quite a bit. And I knew that they had a song called I Got a Line on You, which was their best known song from the radio at the time. And eventually, at some point, I picked this album up at Greenlight. And I don't even know when, probably 2011, 2012. I may have listened to it once. Flash forward to this year, Sean was hosting the Open Decks. I don't know how much we want to say about that, but that was kind of like an open mic for DJs, essentially. Yeah, uh, just like local DJs of any skill level getting a half hour slot on like the house turntables to come and play like whatever styles of music they want to. I know both Peter and Jeremy and Katie were all part of that a few different times. It was such fun. Yeah. We all missed out. I'm sorry. <laughs> it really was a blast. It, and it was a chance for me. And you may have all had this experience to go through my records and see what I had. Mm -hmm. And I decided to, Oh, there's spirit. I got a line in you. I'm going to play that one as part of my theme that I'm doing tonight at the open decks. Friend of mine, I posted my set list online and a friend of mine commented asking, how's the rest of that album? And I thought to myself, I can't answer that. I have never really <laughs> listened to it or I, I don't know offhand. So decided to put it on while I'm doing dishes around the house chores. And suddenly I'm just immersed in this lush, interesting just all over the place set of music like this album just kind of goes every which way and it's really nothing like the one hit that i've got a line on you that was the only single released from this album it peaked at number 25 on the u.s top 100 on march 15th 1969 it was written by guitarist randy california and the song helped boost the sales of the album which peaked at number 22 in march of 1969 and that brings us to the why this is a $3 album that sits in record stores, because yeah. there were a lot of them pressed, just like we talked about with that Human League record. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the, the weird middle ground of they thought it was going to be more successful than it was. The music is really good, but it's not, it's not rare, so it's not talked about, and there's not enough big hits, and it's not getting any current like play of any kind, so it's easy to find, but no one's talking about it. I want to barge in here and make sure we're on the same page. Led Zeppelin, 150% stole Stairway to Heaven, right? Yeah. It's well, like the, identical. The, the big thing was Led Zeppelin's first tour was opening up for Spirit, right? Yes. Yeah, and they even eventually covered Fresh Garbage by Spirit. Yeah. Which is from the same album as Taurus. So yes. They definitely and, heard it. Yeah. And, and they Jim tried to claim that they had never heard it. Yeah, and then Jimmy Page was like, oh, wait, I just found I have this album in my collection. <laughs> <laughs> you, you guys ever have this moment in uh, real life where you're, like, getting upset about something and all of a sudden you're very aware that you're doing the quintessential, like, music nerd bullshit? <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, so in regards to this album, I was watching Stephen Colbert on, like, The Late Show. I think it was The Late Show. It might have been one of his previous shows or something. And he was doing this whole joke routine covering this piece of news that this band Spirit was suing Led Zeppelin. And he was doing this whole joke about how he's, like, giving up Led Zeppelin because they broke his heart. And Spirit's his new favorite band. And he does this thing where he plays this really, like, orchestral track from Dreams of Dr. Sardonicus. Mm -hmm. and he's, like, trying to rock out to it, but he can't. And then 
he was like, oh, I give up. Like, this music sucks. I don't want to hear it. And I'm just like, but Spirit's good. You're not you're not giving this cool band a fair shot, Steven. Like, this is dumb. I don't like your joke. Yeah. <laughs> your jokes can't be at the expense of this obscure artist that yeah, I like. Yeah, like, they're underappreciated. Don't you know that? You, like, intentionally chose a track that was undanceable. Yeah, there's rock tracks on that album, Steven. <laughs> Should have done Mr. Skin, Steven. <laughs> trying to make a joke or something like <laughs> well let's uh listen to i got a line on you track number one That's an upbeat number. I don't know if anyone has any thoughts on that one, or was anyone familiar with that song before I selected this? I was not familiar. Um, listening to this album more generally, though, like my first moments of hearing it, I was like, oh, fuzz guitar, oh, flute. Peter's making me listen to some fucking like hippie hot trash right here. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah, the more I listened to it, it just like opened like a a beautiful flower, like a a butterfly out of the chrysalis Aww. with its uh, sophistication. That's crazy rhythmic changes. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like they utilized the different textures in an interesting way, rather than just being like we're hippies. Here's a flute. Yeah, that's actually a good way of kind of describing how this album sort of unfolds and. The fact that the first side, at least, everything kind of segues together. And they come out the gate with, I got a line on you. And then it really comes down a few notches. There was actually a description that I really liked of it when I was first, after I finally got this album, you know, off my shelf onto the turntable and started listening to it. I did something that I used to do a lot that I don't do as much anymore, and that was go to All Music, mm-hmm. the website, and, and re- read a review. And Matthew Greenwald of All Music yeah, described 
it well. He said, the first side of this record is a wonderful and seamless suite and taken in its entirety, one of the greatest sides of Los Angeles rock, which I really liked because I think about other bands of that time period that get a lot more praise, be it from Los Angeles, be it The Doors. I mean, I'd say even love get more love than spirit do. Yeah, definitely. And but to say that amongst those other bands, to, to give them that kind of uh, praise, and I would agree with it. it this whole side really is kind of almost uh, cinematic in its sound. And I don't know how closely any of you listened to it in previewing the album. I've listened to this album several times before, but like in preparation for this, I only played a couple of the tracks. The one that I listened to in particular is actually the last track on the album, Aren't You Glad? Mm-hmm. Just did like search the album title on YouTube, and that was the first one that popped up. And yeah, I was just instantly reminded of just that great flow to their music. Even within like one song sometimes, it's like telling a whole story and going in a lot of different directions. And the players are all very aware of their effect on the overall vibe of the song. It's not like everybody trying to show off. It's not people just trying to make whatever weird sound that they can, like a lot of the psych records of their time. And yeah, it goes beyond just groove or just rocking or just having a vibe. Like It's a really like subtle shift that I think is fascinating. Yeah, and I didn't realize that when I was first listening to this that uh, there uh, were arrangements. It was arranged, and there was a, a guy who arranged and conducted all the strings that are happening on it. And it was a guy named, it's Marty Pake or Pike. I'm not sure. Hmm. And he's, so he's doing that on top of what the main players are contributing. And his career spanned half a century. And he worked with a lot of big names. Everyone from Ray Charles to Aretha Franklin, Ella Fitzgerald, Stan Getz, Linda Ronstadt, Frank Sinatra, Michael Jackson, Barbra Streisand, Mel Torme, and Spirit. The most important one. (laughs) I think he worked on their first album as well, which has some pretty wild arrangements going on, like on that Mechanical World song that was actually, strangely, that was the single from that first album. I don't don't have a sample of that to play right now, but it's an odd pick. It's very kind of morose number. Yeah. (laughs) Which... Makes me wonder why that first album didn't really take off. <laughs> you don't wonder why that first album didn't really take off with that as the single. I Got a Line on You was a much better pick for a single. And I don't really know that a lot of the other tracks on this would have worked as singles at that point in time, late 1968, early 1969. Yeah, that was the only song that struck me as like a even in a pop format at all. Yeah. The album really does open up into, I think cinematic was probably the the word that feels most descriptive to me you used yeah and I, I think we can play another track from that i mentioned earlier the song fresh garbage that was on the first album and this song that's coming the next song that we're going to listen to it's track number three and it's called poor richard and the very first line is remarking on the freshness of garbage and that just tickles me i i loved it when I, so when i first was really getting into like the beatles and I was I was mostly listening to like '90s gangster rap, hip hop at the time, and which they always refer back to other songs of theirs, make references to other songs. And I thought it was so cool on Glass Onion that John Lennon was like referencing all these name dropping <laughs> all these other things from Beatles songs. Little did I realize that like 
artists had been doing sequels to their songs since the 1950s, early 60s with like yeah. Buddy Holly mm-hmm. doing Peggy Sue Got Married, Chubby Checker, uh, Let's Twist Again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or even uh, like Leslie Gore doing Judy's Turn to Cry, her follow-up to It's My Party. Totally. That was the, the music industry formula for everything. Like you had a hit, we did something right, let's keep doing that. Even if it's not as big of a hit, we'll make some money. Like, yeah. <laughs> So I really like this uh, reference here to Fresh Garbage at the beginning. And yeah, let's listen to Poor Richard. I just want to jump back real quick. Uh, you had mentioned the arranger, Marty Pake. Marty Page. We, we Pike probably, or Pake, yeah. We should figure out the pronunciation beforehand, but whatever. Um, I just uh, pulled up his discogs real quick to see if I knew any of the stuff he was in. And he did an album in 66 on Reprise Records called The Rock Jazz Incident, which I definitely really like. Um, I love collecting any of that like crossover psych rock and jazz kind of like concept album stuff. And that's one I'm familiar with, which... I think makes a lot of sense being just a few years before this. So you kind of had some uh, frame of reference for the stuff that was going on in this album. And I think definitely adds to the overall vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for looking that up. And I really was not familiar with his name prior to looking up information on this album. Uh, The cover is one of the reasons that it may have uh, sat on my shelf for so long. I think the first spirit album has a pretty cool cover with the kind of a composite of all their faces on it. But this one, it's a black and white photograph of the band standing on the steps at a motel next to a telephone booth. And in the foreground, it says motel $6 a night. Of course, uh, Katie just mentioned the band member Ed Cassidy while we were listening to the last, last track. Explain a little bit about that, Katie, if, if you like. So the band is like a family band in a way where Cassidy is the stepfather to... Can you familiarize me with the other band members really Ra- quick? Randy California. Randy California. 
and he's about 20 years the senior to anyone else in the group but he is one of the people that they credit to bringing this contemporary jazz sound into this rocking rock and roll and when you're talking about the cover when i would see it in the store i definitely would have thought that this is a band that's going to sound like crosby stills nash and young or something or crosby stills nash when they are doing their kind of yacht rock type of stuff so i'm not really drawn to that necessarily you think that when you look at this album cover you get a different idea and when the song starts uh the first track is just very different than the rest of the album and you think that you're going to be getting into this really dancey rock album it's just sending a lot of mixed signals <laughs> you don't know what to expect but it's a great album definitely worth checking out more and the family aspect of this band is something that went through their discography. It was something that they were kind of proud of and was in the forefront of their story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I didn't realize until I was doing research that Ed Cassidy, the stepfather of Randy California, the drummer, that he had actually played with a number of groups. Let me Jazz see legends. Jazz Thelonious legends. Monk. Yeah. yeah, I know he did. Yeah, Thelonious Monk was in there. I had a whole list here of uh, highlight names. Believe me, it was a premier list. Yeah, I've seen the list. I know it's there. <laughs> there were good names on it. Thelonious saying. Monk is one of them. I remember I looked at the list, and I just said, wow. Yeah. What a list. Yeah. Sean, do you have feelings on the list? I didn't look at the list. You didn't look at the list? didn't even look at the list? I preferred to just like listen to the music and like have an unbiased opinion on it. Well, that's a good way to go, too. Thank you. (laughs) So here's a few of those names, Sean. He played with Thelonious Monk, Cannonball Adderley, and Roland Kirk. Whoa. Those are just a few of the names that he had played with prior to... uh, I don't know, should we go into the backstory of Spirit here a little bit now? I'd like to hear the full list of people that we play with. Every person. (laughs) Randy California was born in, he was Randolph Wolf. Yeah, his name's not really Randy California. No, and we'll get to- Nobody's named that. No, that's too cool of a name. Randy Catalina, Randy California. Uh, He was born in 1951 in Los Angeles, and his- uh, Uncle Ed Pearl owned the Ash Grove, which was a nightclub in Hollywood. So he grew up hearing jazz, blues, folk, all kinds of different music. Had a lot of, it was exposed to a lot early on. In early 1965, the Rising Suns, a, a folk blues group fe- featuring Taj Mahal and Ry Cooter, performed at the Ash Grove. And the band's drummer, Ed Cassidy, met and married Randy's mother. Cassidy ended up leaving the Rising Suns following a wrist injury. While uh, Randy was at folk music camp, he met a couple of aspiring musicians from the San Fernando Valley. That was singer-percussionist Jay Ferguson and bassist Mark Andes. So in September of 1965, they formed the Red Roosters with Ed Cassidy, now Randy's stepfather, on drums. And they played at the Ash Grove. The Red Roosters broke up when Cassidy moved his family to New York in spring of 1966 in search of work. While they were in New York, Randy, who was then 15 years old, was spotted by another guitarist at Manny's, a music store in Manhattan. The guitarist who spotted him was a cat calling himself Jimmy James, and he led a group called the Blue Flames. He invited Randy to sit in with them at a gig at the Cafe Wa. I've heard of this place. I've always assumed that's how you say it, with a question mark at the end, the Cafe Wa. 
And that's in Greenwich Village. Randy impressed Jimmy James and was asked to join the Blue Flames. Jimmy James rechristened him Randy California to distinguish him from bassist Randy Palmer, who became Randy Texas. Guess where he was from? Uh, Maryland. (laughs) (laughs) No. I saw that joke from a mile away, and I still still let a little giggle out. (laughs) So Jimmy James and the Blue Flames were gigging regularly at the Cafe Wa. And enter Linda Keith. Do any of you know Linda Keith by name? No. Sean? No. Jeremy? Linda Keith? No, still no. No. You should because she's one of the most important people in rock history. I don't like rock. (laughs) Well, I understand. Linda Keith, who was a fashion model, she took a liking to the band and convinced Chaz Chandler from The Animals to come check them out in July of 1966. Chandler was awestruck by Jimmy James and offered to take the guitarist to London and form a band with British musicians. Jimmy James was soon to become... Jimmy Hendrix. You were right there for that one. (laughs) Yes, Jimmy James was Jimi Hendrix. And the story goes that initially, while plans were being made for Hendrix to go overseas, he wanted California to come to London with him. Now, I had always heard that uh, California's parents weren't too keen on their 15-year-old going over to London, and that also Chaz Chandler really thought that the focus should be on Hendrix. However, I was reading a little deeper, and I found that one night after as the plans were being made at the Cafe Go-Go, also in New York, while both Hendrix and California were shredding on stage, Randy reached over and dialed his boss's guitar volume knob down to zero. Good form. Yeah. Remember, he's 15 years old at this point. Hendrix threw a fit, flung his strat across the room, and walked off stage out of the club and onto the street. The invitation to London was withdrawn. <laughs> Damn. So, yeah. True or false, Randy California is an asshole. <laughs> It may be true, but not as much so as Jimmy Page. Ooh. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, we all... Yeah, why did everybody look you at guys, me? Yeah. I don't know. It felt natural. I saw everybody else doing it, so... We all looked at Sean after Peter said that. You can't see us because we're just in your ears right now. This is live, and we're inside your head, and we're reciting this information. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that was like judgment directed at me or if I was just expected to like drop some nugget of information that I'm not aware of. Or like, defend what, Jimmy, defend Jimmy Page right now. No, fuck that guy. <laughs> so uh, California was then whisked back to L.A. by his family in January of 1967. Reunited with their rooster buddies, uh, they added a keyboard player, John Locke, not to be confused with the philosopher, that I'm sure we're all familiar with. They called themselves Spirits Rebel Spirits Rebellious before shortening it to Spirit. Huh. <laughs> like Spirits Rejoice. Yeah. <laughs> More local f- trivia fun fact references. Cool. This is going to be a nationally syndicated podcast within like months, okay? Yeah, I'm going to I'll cut it. I'll cut it out, okay? You'll need to like get up with current events, <laughs> reference things outside of this town. Ugh. I heard there's a place called Ohio. That's not true. <laughs> I check Google Maps. There's no Ohio. Yeah, there's just this big void 
thing on the map. It's like when you try to look for Area 51. It's a lake. That's You think that it's Lake Ontario. I'm sorry I, for this digression. Oh, no, no problem. <laughs> I had to figure out where I was at here. So Spirit are now playing around in Los Angeles in 1967, and they get signed in August by Lou Adler. He signed them to his label, Ode. This came out on that label, and I think it's time to listen to another song. I would definitely say so. Let's go ahead, and we're going to listen to a mellower cut called Darlin' If, which is the sixth song on side one. Peter, I've got a a bone to pick with you on this one. I believe we have actually stated earlier episodes that in order for a record to be selected for this, it had to be worth a median value of $5 or less on Discogs. Mm -hmm, Correct. Did you happen to look at the median value of this record? Oh, no. I did because I looked at the the epic reissue, which is the copy I have that goes for $3. Burn. Not the original. Fair. This is the 1969 reissue. Burn. Well, I would have appreciated some kind of a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode because <laughs> what, what is know, the 1968 original on Ode? Eight dollars and fifty cents. Oh. <laughs> Times are hard. Like in this economy, you expect people to be dropping that kind of coin on these fucking hippie records. Yeah, I guess I hadn't realized that in the six years since I bought this that it really skyrocketed. <laughs> Yeah, this is actually a, uh, a, a reissue that came out about a year after the original that's on, it's on Epic and Ode, but the original I think is just on Ode. Okay. So Now, have you bought both copies and like AB'd them, and can you tell us what the like mastering differences are? I can't tell you the mastering differences between those two, but I know that the digital versions are actually very different from from the these earlier ones as far as like the stereo scope and whatnot okay uh was this record originally mono or stereo do you know i hope it was i imagine stereo does it what does it say there stereo okay 
this like a cool. quiz? Is this going to happen when I'm doing mine? No, we just do this to Peter. It's yeah. not like it doesn't happen on our episodes. It's just we always like <laughs> grill him because like, he's so smart. Here's my question. Do you think that it was early pressing on the lathe? or whatever yeah like what what matrix numbers do i want to look for to like be most likely to find a hot stamper version of this yeah because i don't want to just waste my three dollars on issue 1000 or something i want number five yeah yeah make sure that you uh look for the epic reissue of this to get it for the fair price because it's really not worth any more than that just kidding i love this album it's beautiful it's fantastic that is something i actually was going to bring up that i was i didn't look into the price of the original so yeah you got you got me you really got me well real talk this is one of those bands that you'll find that even though the record sometimes like technically the median value is like more in the ten dollar range because it's not as much of a sought-after record, you can find a lot of stores and sellers that will just have this super cheap because maybe if they're not selling it online anywhere, they're just not aware of what the actual value is or maybe their local audience isn't picking it up. So like, you could find a perfectly good copy in a dollar bin if you keep looking. I, I remember you telling me that about Pentangle's Basket of Light. Yeah. I was like so shocked that I saw it for $5. I'm sure that's got to be a $10, $15 record. And you're like, well... Maybe, but not many people know what it is. Yeah, yeah. Value is a funny thing. I mean, that's we keep talking about that every episode. We're here to just talk about establishing your own concept of value for a record based on whether you like the music or not, not based on someone else's opinion of it or what the actual like you know economic value of it is supposed to be. Also, money is pretend. There's nothing backing that dollar in your pocket. True. Just a belief, True. trust, abstract. True trust that our government can back that if you find this record that's overpriced just fucking walk out the door with it don't pay for it (laughs) money doesn't mean anything true you heard it here on i'd buy that for a five finger discount (laughs) (laughs) uh how about we listen to one more song and then i'll talk a little bit about uh a little more about the band uh Mm -hmm. let's listen to on side two jeremy let's listen to the song Jewish, which Randy California was Jewish. Okay. Very distinct Randy California double tracked harmonized 
soloing going on in there. A lot of the first album has that, and there it was again. Sean, did you have anything that you wanted to uh, ask me at this point? <laughs> anything at all? Yeah, what was it? I just had it, now it's gone. You wanted to ask him about Questlove. I got it, I got it. Okay, hang on. Yeah, so... Um, Back to the uh, the thing with value. The uh, median value of this album is apparently suspect. But uh, one thing I know for sure is that you can find all of Jay Ferguson's solo records for like <laughs> 25 cents a piece. Are any of those good? Which is the one people need to like get? Well, I don't know a whole lot about Jay Ferguson's, Ferguson's solo albums, but he did have a big hit in 1978 with Thunder Island. Right. I think album had the same name it may have had the same name i actually just listened to it today for the first time it is a cheese fest (laughs) the few things i've heard from him were like that because i remember us like getting into spirit at a similar time and Mm -hmm. i was like oh and then like a couple of them started this band jojo gun afterwards and those records are good Mm -hmm. and i was like oh and jay ferguson has solo records i wonder if those are good no no not not anything (laughs) i've heard yeah jay ferguson and mark andes did leave spirit in the early 70s to form Jojo Gun, which you just mentioned. Randy California left right after they did. Spirit did continue on with other members. I don't know how many original members were left at that point. I don't know a whole lot after that point. But in 1972, Randy California put out an album called Captain Copter and the Fabulous Twirly Birds. Yeah, which is another record that you don't see it a ton. It's like if you were to buy it online, you spend a little bit of money on it. But you... you if you keep looking, you might be able to find a cheap copy because no one knows who that is or people aren't even going to know the Spirit Association. And even if they do, I don't like that might not mean any kind <laughs> of value related thing to that seller. Uh, but that record is really good. Like, it, if you like this, yeah. keep an eye out for that album. I've, I've listened to that one. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about, unfortunately, uh, Randy California. Uh, died in 1997. He drowned in the Pacific Ocean at the age of 45 while rescuing his 12-year-old son, Quinn, from a rip current near the home of Randy's mother, Bernice Pearl, in Malakai, Hawaii. He managed to push Quinn toward shore to safety, but he did not make it. Wow. Jeez. His stepfather, Ed Cassidy, lived until, I believe, 2012. Hmm. I don't really know what he continued to do music musically after that point. Probably started continued drumming for amazing jazz artists or something. Why wouldn't you? But that's about, for me, uh, as much as I have to say about this album, Spirit, the family that plays together. Yeah. They, to go out on, I really want to hear a little bit from the last track, because like I said, that was the one I spent the most time with previous to this episode last night, and I specifically was really impressed with the drumming on it not necessarily because it's super flashy but it actually has this kind of choppy distinctive feel to it that reminded me a lot of uh some of the stuff Questlove has been doing uh over the last couple decades with his like drunk drumming style (laughs) that he's popularized so it's, it's interesting to hear not only someone doing that well before him but someone doing it from like the more rock side of things but yeah i didn't know that uh, the drummer had that jazz background. It definitely makes a lot more sense. So knowing that, let's hear some of the final track, Aren't You Glad? Aren't you glad, you glad, you glad, baby? Yes, I'm glad, so glad I'm glad, baby. Aren't you glad, you glad, you glad, baby? Yes, I'm glad, so glad I'm glad, baby. Aren't you glad, you glad, you glad, baby
Yeah, that's an epic track on the epic reissue of this album. <laughs> the cheap, inexpensive version that I bought. You know, that's something we actually haven't even mentioned at all. This episode, aside from the first, or this series, aside from the first episode, is using the actual vinyl copies that each of us bought and are talking about. Yeah. That's, yeah. So that's fun, right? That's a cool little unique feature. Like, people will think that's interesting, right? Yeah, absolutely. I really like how the rips sound. Yeah. So, like, you get the actual crackle and pop instead of, like, the compressed YouTube version. Like, this is a high-quality show. We're doing a good job. <laughs> we're doing a very good job. Yes. Katie, well, what do you think about the job we're doing? If you haven't already, click subscribe now. <laughs> <laughs> and send it to the P.O. <laughs> oh, and if you have goodies, send it to our P.O. box. This has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Sean Hartman. I'm Katie May. We'll see you next week. With Katie May again doing an album that she has selected. Stay tuned. If you liked this episode, you can find us at I'dBuyThatPodcast.com. We're also on Facebook, Instagram. Like it. Follow it. If you have any records you'd recommend, tell us in the comments or email us at I'dBuyThatPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for your support.